0: Story, but the little I do know of decades of missions and pastoral experience, I'm excited to hear from you two today. So, all let Pastor Jeff and Juicy more, um, but here we go. We do have to give a little bit of an on ramp because for those of you that have been around here before, we do Q and A like once or twice a year. And uh, Mark Ort, one of our elders, and uh, he's been a friend of mine for a very, very, very long time. But he's usually up here with me because Mark Ort and I did prison ministry together. And um, we did this all the time, every week. Well, Mark was unavailable this week. And this guy here, late in the week, I'm like, you know what? We have a guy, 40-year missionary in Germany. And I'm like, Edmund surely has, and he's done this before, right? 20? I thought you said 40 years. 40 years of ministry, 20 was in Germany. I beg your pardon. I thought all 40 was in Germany. Man, all right, well, we'll strike that from the video. All right, well, where were the other 20 years? California. Well, that's worse than Germany. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah, he, all right, I have much more respect for him now. Yeah. <laughs> he went from a really, really, really dark place far away, and uh, also he went to Germany. So, um Amen. But anyways, um, so I, I reached out to Mark, and I, like I said, he wasn't available. I'm like, hey, I was thinking about asking Edmund, and he said that would be an excellent choice, and it was kind of late in the game, so I really appreciate Edmund stepping in, so if you would just show him some love and appreciation. So Edmund, why don't you have a seat, and um, let's look at some of the questions, but do we need to set the timer on the, do we need to set a timer, we're good, all right, so um, we gotta lay some ground rules, right? The rules are this. We can only, uh, well, first of all, if you, if you are a first timer, these questions were submitted by the congregation over the past month, and we can only answer what we think you're asking, okay? So, if you submitted the question and we take a swing at it and you're like, that's not what I meant at all, um, see me privately and we can talk more about it, but we can only answer the questions according to what we think is being asked. And we are going to uh, attempt to give the shortest and most simplest answer possible. Why? Because there were 10 questions submitted. And honestly, if we gave all of these questions the time they deserved, we would miss the Steeler game. So every one of these were great questions. And right, Edmund? We could spend a lot of time on these things. So let's get to it, my friend. What's What's up first?
1: Question number one. What does the Scripture say about the one world... Okay. Now, interestingly,
0: there is not a verse in the Bible that says there shall be a one-world currency. There's not a verse that says that, right, Edmund? But that, that principle is drawn out because Revelation chapter 13 says um, that you know we we went through the Book of Revelation here in the church, um, talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet and the mark of the beast and all that. It causes all, but small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So um, we certainly see the principle there that if there's going to be this worldwide control of the economy to the degree that nobody globally, because we know that this tribulation is globally, nobody globally can buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast, then that necessarily implies that there has to be some sort of one-world currency.
1: Yet, at the same time, we got to consider, since it doesn't say it literally in the Word of God, but we see through church history, it has come through. Because the Bible talks about types. It's like Joseph being a type of the Savior. His brothers, remember, uh, sold him out, and then he ends up being the Savior of the world at that time. While there's different types, and there's types of Antichrist. the Bible in first John says there's many. but here, in our recent Bible studies at the church, there was in Luke chapter two, Caesar Augustus, who was Octavius, but his name is Augustus at this time, he made a census, and through the census he did he, the Bible tells us he did too, and, and when you would go to Ephesus which is in Turkey, if you would walk down the promenade at that one point, this is when the persecution was going, they would put Christians on poles and light them on fire for light. But if you would go into the marketplace to buy or to sell, he had a subscription on the entrance that says Caesar is the son of God. And you had to agree with that to be able to buy or sell. So you have a type. And yet on the second census, cause he's now numbering the known kingdoms of the world and it was all for financial gain and power. So you have a type of antichrist. It's there. There's many other ones throughout history. So we see there is something coming.
0: Absolutely. You see how that is possible, right? Like, you know, this, you know, we see little, you know, examples of it in history, but it's preparing us. Yeah, because John says that there are you know many Antichrists, but there's one big one coming. It's sort of like that with this, that we see little pockets of how such a thing is possible, but there's going to be a global, you know, uh, restriction. You won't be able to buy or sell unless you worship the Antichrist.
1: And the the ability is here. The Sequoia uh, supercomputer to be able to do the calculations for every transition it's been here. In fact, there's probably even a faster
0: computer. Yeah, absolutely. All right, what do we got next, Edmonds? This, uh, before you ask this one, um, uh, this could be uh, my favorite question ever asked in Q and A day. And um, when I was talking to Mark Gort when he was um, planning on being here, he said the same thing. He said this could be my favorite question ever in Q and A day. So,
1: it says, if you could experience any moment in the Bible as an observer what event would you like to witness isn't that a great question we don't know who submits
0: these unless they put their name but i you know whoever did this that that is such a great question and you know what the, the the first thing that i thought of when i read this you know the first thing i thought of the event that i would like to see would be the resurrection of lazarus wouldn't that have been awesome could you imagine being there and like people are crying and he's in the tomb and and here comes Jesus, and Jesus like roll the stone away, and and they roll the stone away, and Jesus, Father, I thank you that you always hear me, and Lazarus come out. Like, could you imagine? And then here comes Lazarus, like oh, that that had to have been just like one of the most mind blowing things anybody has ever seen. Glory so glory. to me, it would be like the resurrection of Lazarus. That that to me was just that that would have to be
1: absolutely just wow. What about you? Well according to prophetic words that come from our Bible, there's a day, even as we see the development of what we're seeing today, there's going to be a one-world government with armies and being led by an evil man called the Antichrist. At one point in the time in the future, he will turn his armies to now invade Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. And that is when the long-awaited time of Christ to come back. And he comes back like a movie to rescue his people. And he will stand on the Mount of Olives, and it will quake, and he will end up destroying the Antichrist. But in that time when he does come down, the children of Israel will see the piercings in his hands, and they will recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. How glorious is that gonna be.
0: Amen. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't and I don't know if there's really a wrong answer to this one. I mean, could you imagine all the things we can think about? Like I, I was talking to my wife about this, like watching David kill Goliath. You know, could you imagine being there to see that whole scene? And, or you know, being their creation, you know, when God was like, let there be, and boom, there it was. And there's just yeah, such a good question. And uh um yeah. I think lots
1: of great answers. What do we got next, Edmund? We got a good one here. How do you break generational curses? Okay, generational
0: curses. Um, just to sort of define, in case uh, again we're trying to assume what's being asked here. Um, but for for people that might be like, well, what do you, what do you mean by generational curses? Well, it's the belief that your actions affect your offspring, and that uh, some people believe that like when you do wrong, God is going to punish your kids and your grandkids for the wrong that you did. And I don't believe it exactly works that way. But biblically, it is true. Um, like, for example, what do we have? Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, Edmund's going to clarify this here in a second, but it's not as if God's going to say, okay, I'm punishing you for your father's sin. Edmund's going to explain that in a second. So when I think of the generational curse, this is something that we see all around us. You know, And we don't need for anybody to shout out examples of this at all, but you've seen it in families where there's a certain sin tendency that seems to be passed on. Meaning, like, dad is an alcoholic and an abuser, the son has the tendency to do that, to treat, you know, his wife that way, and, or, you know, somebody with a sexual addiction or perversion has a child that has a something similar. So you see how the, the sin tendency does get passed down. And the, the question is, how do you break that? Well, you know, good news. We live under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. The prisoners are set free and bonds are broken because the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't just atone or cover our sin. Jesus takes away our sin. So there is healing and wholeness in Jesus Christ. So that, that's how that's broken, is only through the blood of Christ. So, Edmund, would you please, I know you, you um, and, and some of the stuff you prepared, we're talking about um, the way the, the generational thing works. Would yeah. you please share with us, please? Well,
1: in contrast to that thought that you're automatically guilty, uh, the next generation's, We have in Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, verses 20 to 23, it says, The person who sins will die. The son will not suffer the punishment for the father's guilt, nor will the father suffer the punishment of the son's guilt. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wicked of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked person turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and keeps all my statutes and practice justice and righteousness, he shall surely or certainly live. He shall not die. All his offenses, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him. Very key. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than he, that he would turn from his ways and that he would live. So this is important. We see a difference here. And so when it comes to generational curses, it's true. That's why a lot of Christianity is it's not so much taught, it's caught. When mom and dad practices it, the kids pick it up. If a parent ain't practicing it, but he's telling his kids, be a Christian, that doesn't work. Usually that ends up being rebellion in the end. So we're seeing that when it comes to that guilt or that sin, curse if we want to say it, what we see is in the end, it's the consequences that affect that family. And consequences, same temptation that brought down your parents will end up bringing down most likely the kids, because that was normal in that household. So I think this is more rather than the guilt and the condemnation that uh, comes with that.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you you see that, like I said, just so many times, just the tendency of the Father. You see see that scripturally, right? Remember Abraham, you know, uh, fell into some sin lying about, his wife, and then what did his son do? Exact like almost thing. the exact same thing, right? And what, like, how did, how did he learn that? It's, I think that's how the generational thing works. It's we true. have this tendency to carry on the sins of our fathers.
1: First Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So we see that. It changes us, who we hang out with. Uh, you know, we're many times guilty by association.
0: Right. Yeah, that's what, you know, we, t- we tell that to our kids, right? We're like, you you act like the person, the people that you're closest to. So that's true. I mean, look at your friends. If your friends are a bunch of knuckleheads, you're probably <laughs> a knucklehead.
1: Right? In a nice way.
0: In a nice way. Yeah, we mean that in the good Christian way. <laughs> right, Edmund? At least that's how I meant it. I don't know about him, but that's that's how I meant it. But what, well, you break it
1: is personal repentance. Yes. yes. That's it. Personal. Personal, repentance. personal. Yeah,
0: absolutely. All
1: right, what do we got next? The next one is... Christmas. Eve. Yes, here's a Christmas one. It says, how long after the birth of Jesus did the three wise men appear? Most nativity scenes have them there along with the shepherds. Matthew 2 says they arrived about the same time as his birth. Some have told me they arrived more than a year after his birth, which begs the question, what did they do in Bethlehem all that time? All right, um,
0: excellent question. Because It is confusing because when you see a nativity scene, um, the, the the magi are there, the wise men are there, and there's always three of them, and they have their gifts. Um I saw this year I saw a picture somebody posted online of a little nativity scene they had in their house and the caption above the the scene says my mom still hasn't noticed. So I'm looking very closely at this nativity scene and somebody stuck an action figure of Yoda from Star Wars and, and you know he's wearing the tan and he's bent over and I'm like that's that's hilarious. Um so for sure, Yoda was not at the nativity scene. But, um, but but the other truth is um, n- neither were the magi, and we know that because Matthew chapter two says that um, at this point uh, Jesus and uh, his earthly parents they were it says and going into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother. Um, but then verse sixteen. It says, that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, look at this, it says, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under. So he didn't just randomly pick that number. He got that time from the Magi. So he's like, if I'm going to kill the king that was born, I have to get all the babies that were two and under. And so it's because of that that we realize that Jesus was obviously born at this point but he was under two years old at this point but the truth is the Bible doesn't say exactly how old he was and we don't know how long the um, magi were in Jerusalem or Bethlehem because they went to both places right they started in Jerusalem and ended up in Bethlehem so um, the Bible just doesn't give us a, a timeline there Ed yes
1: in uh, Matthew 2 2 is a little key uh, information here it says they ask, where is he who has been born? So he, the Lord is already born. Now, how long is the question? We do not know. And yet at the same time, we gotta ask this questions. We gotta, we gotta have a series of questions because these three wise men, they came from Persia. What we do know is that Daniel, out of, out of coming out of Babylon, went into the Persian kingdom. In captivity as well, he is believed the one that brought up the order of the magi's, and so he would have been looking toward the Messiah to come about this star because it's mentioned in the Word of God, and so as as this order of magi's, uh, we even get the word magistrates from magi, they would come because they were considered king makers. They would be part of the making the next priest and also the next kings. So they were into all this, uh, you know, understanding and, uh, kind of prophetic things. They were like
0: doctors and astrologers. Yes. They were a whole,
1: the pharmacists, they were a whole lot of things rolled into one. Very important people. So here we have them coming. And if they were under that order of Daniel who was looking, because we know. Daniel, remember, Daniel, especially nine, chapter nine, he's talking about even the day, Palm Sunday, literally to the day. So it's all about numbers. It's exact timing of everything. So he, he knows that, uh, that prophecy is going to come to fruition, but how much more the birth? And so Daniel understands he, he teaches these magi, this, whole thing about a coming messiah for the whole world so no doubt i don't think they you know were dragging their feet i think they were there on time
0: yeah and you know that's where you get to watch because some of the images and and, uh, depictions that we see can sort of i guess subconsciously shape our theology but we think that there were three of them and we don't know how many there were we think there were three because they it says there were three gifts right so we just assume that each one brought one gift. And in some traditions even have their names. For I there can't is. Remember. Right, like- well,
1: actually, in Germany, in the city of Cologne, there's a big cathedral. There's this golden chest, beautiful golden chest. And supposedly the three heads of the wise men are in that chest. Really? Yes. I got a picture. I'll, I'll have to show you.
0: Is there any way we can get that picture up on the screen? (laughs) I think we all want to take a gander at the three wise heads.
1: So, wow. Remember, they were into relics in that time in Europe. Anything, they had power behind. So three heads of the wise men, that's pretty powerful. All right, what do we got next, Edmund? This is a good one. This is uh, something that I think a lot of people are thinking about. And it comes from Romans 13, uh, verses, th- verse 3. It says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Uh, and then the, the question says, uh, this seems to be backwards in these days, according to Romans 12, 21. It says, Not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. So are we to Fight or do or 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 don't we are we to passively accept evil rulers?
0: okay, when it says um, overcome evil with good, I don't see that as a call to fight a wicked government because the the subject of government doesn't come until chapter thirteen. Chapter twelve focuses on personal relationships specifically personal relationships in the church. So when it says overcome evil with good, it's not saying like, okay, they're evil, I'm good, so I need to overcome them. What that's saying is when someone does evil unto me, I don't retaliate with more evil. It's not like revenge and retaliation and eye for an eye. It's okay, I'm going to overcome your wickedness with um, acts of righteousness, with things that you know, um, would imitate Jesus. Which, you know, by the way, um, we don't we're not exactly like pioneering new territory as a culture and having wicked rulers, right? Because you realize there's a whole lot of people throughout history, even biblical history, that lived under wicked rulers, like uh Moses, um Elijah, um Paul, uh how about Jesus himself, you know, we just spent three years in the Gospel of John. Jesus lived under, you know, an extremely wicked government. And, you know, we don't see them being revolutionaries to overthrow the government. There was a, there was a submission even to a, a very evil government. And
1: that's important to, to understand because, remember, Nebuchadnezzar thought his kingdom which it was, it was an amazing. It's the gold part of the statue uh, that was in the vision. Yet he had to learn that it is God who puts in kingdoms and takes down kingdoms. So that's one thing. And we're all in this plan of God. And really, we're just sojourners here. And we're here to really make a choice for God or, or against him. And this is one of the things because when it comes down to this point of do we fight and do we do we kill or not, well the commandment, the sixth commandment, it's more thou shalt not murder that not thou shalt not kill, because we see in scripture there is killing. David killed Goliath, Elijah killed the false prophets. So there is there is we gotta get certain things right and, and not go in the wrong direction, because even I in Germany, because I can understand the German culture. Uh, what happened there, in World War II with Hitler and all that. They were, they're against war at all means against war and they, they call it evil and wrong. But then I had to tell them, wait, be careful on that point because we see in Revelation 1911, Jesus is coming back to earth to make war with the Antichrist. And, and I go, so is Jesus sinning? And now they don't know what to say. You see, we gotta really look at the word of God and what it's saying and not our own feelings and opinions. Very key and very important.
0: Yeah. And as far as passively accepting evil rulers, as long as we have the power of prayer, I don't think we're ever passive, right? You know, so.
1: But, but again, what does the Lord says? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord.
0: Right. And what is our responsibility to the government? The Bible says that we should be praying for
1: those that are in those positions. So, well, that's the thing. You know what? Uh, that is that's a very key point because most Christians, uh, in all the years of ministry I've been, California or Germany, prayer meetings are the least attended thing of all church ministry. And so if we're really wanting to deal with this system, then we need to come together and pray against the system. Because at Nehemiah, that's what he did. When you look at all the different things in Scripture, they prayed against evil. Okay? We're in a spiritual battle, the Bible tells us. So how we war is through prayer.
0: That's right. That's right. We saw... Jesus correcting Peter when he, you know, pulled the sword out and thought he was going to hack his way through, you know, revolution, right? And you know, put put your sword back. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And Jesus healed Malchus, you know. So yeah, we we're not without resources as long as we have the power of prayer. And really, prayer is not the power. Prayer is communication with the one who has the
1: power. Right? So. But protection of your family and so forth? To kill is just, it means literally in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill, but it's not, that's not correct. It's thou shall not murder. But to kill, it would be okay. It means cause someone to die. So if an evil is coming against your family and you're protecting them, that is a righteous act according to the word.
0: Yeah, and the Bible makes a, a clear distinction there. Murder is, fueled by hate, premeditated, i hate you, i'm plotting to to eliminate you. That's that's murder. And that yeah, that's different. If you're coming after my family and i'm defending my family, i will kill you and
1: that's not murder. But the key thing is each human is made in the image of God and God holds that as a high standard before we make a decision about killing or anything like that. Because there's many people in life that repent. They've done evil things. And they come to repentance. You know? And so this is where we don't understand. But the one thing I do understand is this. Because I lived on an evil side before in my B.C. days. And the thing is, the mercy you pour out is the mercy that's you're going to be
0: given the measure you use? We measured back.
1: That's right. Don't ever forget that.
0: Amen. Let's let's move on because we yes. do have um, some more good questions yes. here.
1: Uh, here's one very interesting one because there are many verses in the Bible that speaks against a, a multiverse theory as an explanation of of why our universe is so finely tuned.
0: Um, yeah, the Bible doesn't really speak. For or against that, I mean, there there are really no verses that um, speak of like, if I'm understanding the the uh, question correctly, there are really no verses that speak about uh, multiple realities. Um, And I would say the only reality that I'm aware of is the one that the Bible addresses. And in this reality, God created this perfect world, and man, you know, well obviously attempted by the devil, Eve, sin, leading Adam to willfully sin, bringing sin into the world. And that's why we are all born with a sin nature. You don't ever have to teach a child how to do wrong, lie, uh, steal, cheat. They, they know how to do that inherently. Like, who teaches their child how to do that? Like, nobody. You'd be a monster if you sat down and, son, let me tell you how to lie and sneak through life. You'll get ahead. You'd be the worst parent ever. So how does your kid know how to do that if nobody's teaching? It's because we're born with this wicked, sinful, rebellious nature in us. That's that's how we are. We're born with a a bent to sin. And uh, the Bible says that God is a God of justice. And if he was going to give us what we deserve, he would send us to hell, apart from his presence, because we rebelled against a holy God. But God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die, to take our sin on himself, and um, rose from the dead to give us the promise of eternal life. And the way that you are reconciled to God and have your sin taken away and have the promise of eternal life whenever your days um, are done on the earth, you have this promise of heaven, eternal life starts now, but you have the promise of heaven The way that you receive that is through faith, taking God at His word. I believe that Jesus is who He said He is. I believe that He accomplished what He said He would accomplish. And I am turning from my sin because I see how it dishonors you. And I'm crying out, God, please forgive me based on the blood of your Son. Please forgive me for my sin. And when you do that, you become a child of God. You uh, become a co-heir with Christ. And you uh, you receive eternal life and you have the promise of heaven. That's the only reality that I'm aware of.
1: Amen. Amen. And I would say all atheists are willful atheists. If they don't want to believe, they will try to find a way to make an excuse to everything except God of the Bible and what he's done. So the next question is a good question because many people ask this question. And that is, is there an age of accountability?
0: Okay, so there is, but I don't think there's a magic number, okay? Now, what? what is age of accountability? What that means is at some point in your life, you are responsible for making the decision on whether you're going to accept or reject Christ. There has to be a point in your life where that's possible, right? Just think about it. When you're a baby, when you're just born, right out of the womb, are you able to accept or reject Christ? Well, obviously not. What about when you're a toddler? Obviously not. You see where this is going. At some point in your life, you reach a point where you understand, I am a sinful person and I need God's grace and I see what He's done through Jesus and I have to accept or reject that. At some point in your life, now, um, the age of accountability thing, you know, there's, there are principles like scripturally, Numbers 32 11. Remember, um, because of Israel's persistent Hard hearted sin, God got to the point where he said those that are twenty years and older are not going to enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. And you know, those younger than twenty are going to enter. So there's the principle there, you know, that God says the older generation is going to die out in the wilderness, the younger generation innocent, not being held responsible for that. But twenty is not the magic number, okay? So if you're like this teenager that knows better and you're like well I can just do whatever the heck I want to do because I'm not accountable yet um I, I I I kind of pump the brakes on that um but there's no magic number but at some point in your life you have to you have to make that decision for yourself because at some point the lights come on you know I'm guilty of sin and I see what God's done and I I think I think it's going to be different from person to person. I mean, what do you think? Well,
1: the first thing is to realize what the word of God does say. Remember David said this in Psalms fifty-one, five: "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my my mother did conceive me." So, we know of the adamic sin nature that all men, women inherit. So, when we understand that, then we know where we have to have a savior. Okay? So, that is the thing. So we know that there's a time where the human has an ability to understand the predicament where they're at. And we know that God's heart is for his creation that it's fallen and it's in this place of a need of a savior. And so this is what we see. We see God's love, his grace and his mercy in our lives and we see his heart. I think in the book of Jonah. Let me read this, verse eleven, chapter four, verse eleven. And God, because remember Jonah, he wants the place to fry. You know, he he wants fire to come yeah. down. Mm-hmm. So we see God's heart here. And God says, "Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than one hundred and twenty thousand persons who cannot discern between?" their right hand and their left hand? See, God understands these little ones. They don't know yet. And so there is a time and a place of of, of the understanding, and that does vary from child to child. And we do know one thing is the Jews, they have their estimate, and that is 13 years old, that they believe. uh, They have these little things, like the Song of Solomon, they don't believe a Jewish man should read that till after the age of 30. So they have these little things because it's so romantic that they, 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 you know, calm down over there on that book. So you got these little rules, but what is it literal, you know, for everybody? So each person, especially on this one, uh, you see God's heart, he wants them to understand, but he knows there's a time when they don't. So... We just gotta leave it to that point of where that one child, and of course, no one comes to an understanding unless the Holy Spirit awakens them. And that's key.
0: Right on. Well, let's, um, let's, we got just a a few more here. Let's go through these quickly. Um, speed round.
1: Okay. If we are called to forgive everyone, should we forgive the devil? Is that our place to do that?
0: Uh, I know I know where this question came from because it was submitted like two or three times and um I thought that was a I thought that was a very interesting question um should we uh forgive the devil and I think I think the mindset behind this is okay we're called to forgive everyone so this we get this idea that forgiveness means um no matter what you do to me it's okay and i'm okay with that and you're fine by me but um biblically that's not really what forgiveness means is it forgiveness is a healing of the relationship it is you've wronged me and you owe me and forgiveness is you no longer have that debt i'm i'm freeing you of that debt so forgiveness is much more Multifaceted, then you can do whatever you want to me, and I'm cool with that. Um, forgiveness is about the healing of a relationship. And I would, whoever asked this question, I would ask them to think about it this way. Does God forgive everybody? Now, there's something in us that immediately wants to say, yes, God forgives everybody. Hold on. Does he? Does God forgive everybody? And the answer is no. Now, is the offer of forgiveness available for everyone? Yes, but that doesn't mean everyone takes it. God doesn't forgive everyone because there are people that refuse to come into a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And if God forgave everyone, that means heaven is full and hell is always and eternally going to be completely empty because everybody's forgiven. So forgiveness is much more than you know, just this passive, you know, do what you want kind of thing. And the devil, though being a being a fallen angel, he falls into a completely different category, yeah. even than, than
1: than humanity. Yeah, because he he was a high ranking cherubim, so you need to understand the orders of the angels. And yet, as a cherubim, we see that he rebelled and he brought a third of the angels with him in this rebellion. But you got to understand one thing: he, according to Ezekiel and other scripture, he was perfect at one point. And so from him to decide with with the heart to be able to decide, he chose to go against God in rebellion. But he was already perfect. So he's confirmed in that way that he is. We are much different. We are born sinners. We already have death on us when we come out of the womb. But through the grace of God, we're able to be born again and come to life to eternal life. And then we are right now, when we accepted Christ, the beginning of sanctification, separating the evils out of our life and our, our all those practices. But there's a day, either through death or through the rapture, we will be like Jesus, the Bible says in first John. And that means that speaks of our glorification. And that we will be like him, therefore we cannot sin. And we'll be confirmed in that so we won't in heaven have to worry about sinning we'll be confirmed in this point of perfection right on awesome that that day
0: that is awesome all right two more we're gonna get through these quickly here
1: why should we bring children or babies into the world especially if we live in the end times?
0: okay easy um we are commanded to multiply and fill the earth Twice, Genesis, what chapter one, verse twenty-eight, and again Genesis chapter nine. That's the commandment. So I don't see anywhere in the Bible where God took it back. Like fill the earth, and then He's like, "Mm, "Okay, you can stop now." No. So you know, if you can have babies, have as many babies as you can.
1: Amen to that. Amen to that. And you know, and also you got to realize is that uh, the scriptures are clear. When it's a believer involved in this child bearing, even if you have a non-believing spouse, that child is separated or sanctified by the Lord to be, it's actually the word holy. So we have to see that God really looks toward the children. Because remember, they are made in his image. So that's very important to keep in mind. And at the same time, all of us No matter what age we're living in, we're all going to have trials and tribulation.
0: Right on. Yeah, that's, we don't know. I mean, I I do believe we're in the end times. Jesus could come back today, tonight, next week. We don't know. But we're called to just live a a life uh, faithfully until he does return. And, you know, filling the earth, I, I believe that's still a valid command.
1: All right, last one. Well, last one. If it took the Council of Trent to determine the Old Testament, how can we as Christians be assured that there are not some books missing from the Old Testament or the Bible as a whole?
0: We get a lot of questions regarding canonization. You know, how did these you know, all these books turn into, like, this Bible that we have on our laps, in our pews? Um, and regarding the Old Testament, just very quickly, Jesus verified the Old Testament. And he quoted from at least 14 different books. Jesus acknowledged people as being real, right? Jesus talked about them as real people, not fables or fairy tales. Um, I believe in the Old Testament because Jesus believed in the Old Testament. Um, and actually, the Old Testament was already a, a completed unit in Jesus' day. and He verified that. Luke eleven fifty one is one example. Jesus says from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. And you're like, well, how does that verify things? Well, in the in the Jewish scriptures, you see, our Old Testament is in a different arrangement. But the, the way the um it's the same books in the Jewish scriptures, in the Jewish Old Testament, exact same books, but they're arranged differently. And in the way the Jewish books were arranged, one of the first events in the Old Testament was the death of Abel. And one of the last events in the Old Testament was the the death of Zechariah. So it was sort of Jesus putting the bookend on that, verifying that.
1: I think very important, too, is to realize that our Bibles came from the Jewish people, not the Europeans. Right. Right. Okay? That's key. Because Trent was really a response from the Catholic Church against the Protestant movement that was now happening in the 1500s. And so... They were trying to, uh, you know, because there was a separation going on about what is truth, and there always has been. There's been different movements, uh, movements the Anabaptist movement, or in, in German or Switzerland, it's the Vita Taufa, to be baptized again. That was, you were put to death by the Lutherans or uh the church, of uh, uh, the Calvinists of that time. They put them to death, Christians putting Christians to death. Because of a doctrine. So this is why we have to be careful. We have to go back to what the Jews said and not just men and their movements. because right. Movements could be wrong. As sincere as they want to be, as sincere as Mormons and getting and being faithful to get in those bicycles and go all over the world, uh, they're not gods. They say they're gods. Right. You know, they're 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 sincerely wrong when it comes to those type of doctrines. So we have to be really careful on this and stay to what the Word of God says.
0: And like I said, canonization is a is a topic that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours with authorship, and you know, it wasn't like you know this is authoritative because we accepted it. It's we accepted it because it is authoritative, and there was a whole process that was involved in that. Um, that unfortunately we don't really have time to get into today, but regarding the Old Testament specifically, um, it was, it was a canon by the time Jesus was preaching and teaching from it. So, um, as our worship team comes forward, I want to thank Edmund for helping me out here, especially at this. <laughs> what a blessing it is for our church to, um, you know, we have, we we have, you know, Mark, who's such an, an amazing leader and elder in our church, unavailable, and we have, you know, this, you know, rock star get up here and, uh, uh, you know, pinch hitting and, and doing a phenomenal job. So thank you so much, Edmund. I'm going to pray, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, do your studies and um, do this with me here in Q&A day. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word has the answers and Father, we're not a group of people that are afraid to ask things. We are not a group of people that put certain things off limits. We don't talk about this. We don't ask about this. This is a taboo subject. Father, we believe that you have all the answers. And we run to you. And when we don't know, we seek and we search and we we study. And I thank you so much that you've given uh, this church the the elders and leaders that we have that are able to step up and help us understand uh, how important doctrine is and uh, how important it is to truly understand what your word says and sort out the lies that are that are being promoted, uh, things that people say your word does say that it actually doesn't. Father, we want to be true to what you reveal to us because we believe that your book is the word of God. And we want to believe it, we want to proclaim it. Uh, Father, we want to pray it back to you. Father, we want this to be the the means by which you continue to um, sanctify us and and grow us and teach us about the heart of the God who saved us. So Father, we again thank you for these amazing questions that were um, offered up, and we thank you for your word that gives us the answers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.